a Podcast One production. Well, when it comes to today's guest, I could do the official and very impressive bio. I could have mentioned he's a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales, that he leads a research group at Data 61, Australia's Centre of Excellence for ICT research. I could mention his Humboldt Research Award. He's a fellow for the Association of Advancement of AI. He's worked in England, Scotland, France, Germany, Ireland and Sweden, or... I could just mention he is, quote, one of Australia's 100 rock stars of the digital revolution, end quote. Either way, Professor Toby Walsh, welcome to The Big Questions. How are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. Would you prefer the 100 rock stars definition? Where did that come <laughs> who, who decides that? Unfortunately, the Australian newspaper gave me that moniker and, and it's one of those albatrosses that's going to follow me around <laughs> till I die. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to nip out to the shops after this and go and buy myself a leather jacket and start behaving are, more are, irresponsibly. Are you familiar with any of the other 99 rock stars? Was there a definitive list produced? Yes, yes, there was a definitive list of the 100 uh, rock stars of the digital revolution. <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to uh, have you on the podcast and I'm happy also that with podcast uh, the medium. We're relying a little bit less on heavy technology than the last time I sat down and interviewed you, which I'm sure you'll remember was on the ABC, the drum TV <laughs> show over the last summer where uh, yourself, myself, um, another guest and uh, via video hookup, Amanda Vanstone, the former government minister, were on a panel. And pretty much as soon as we asked Amanda Vanstone the first question of the show, she vanished into some sort of hyperdimension in the television nebula, so we could sort of weirdly see her fr- outline on, on on a screen and this this sort of vaguely human voice. Do you remember that? I do, I do, I do remember very much. She started to ask some question ab- about hackers or something, and the machines <laughs> took over at that point. I was asked. And- that's what I was asking for people who've seen the TV show Designated Survivor. I was asking, does Australia have a designated survivor protocol that if things went horribly wrong, is there a secret second government that would step in and, and officially run the country? Are there are there forces beyond the army and all that that we don't even know of? And it obviously got a little bit close to the truth. It did. The security services stepped in and finished the conversation. <laughs> now, today's topic, what we're going to talk about, artificial intelligence and your amazing new book, 2062, The World That AI Made. It's It's a very ripe conversation. It's very now. It's full of a lot of definitions and, and issues of contention that I want to work through. Let me start with the the most obvious one. I'm sure people always ask you, why 2062? What does the 2062 in the title represent and why do we get is, is it is it like a, a, a is, is it a sydney postcode <laughs> well, I, I did give a talk at stanton library which is in the 2062 postcode and one lady turned up and i sadly disappointed her when i i hadn't written the book about her area and she honestly thought it was about Camaray or she North did Sy- so she hadn't read the byline the world that ai made uh, well, yes it's, it's about the year uh, the the technical answer to the question is is that if you I surveyed three hundred of my colleagues, other researchers in AI, and that was the average estimate of when machines would be as smart as humans. Okay, what was the what what were the 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 end points of that? What was the soonest and what was the latest? That there was not just one completely radical view, but any 
you know, decent weight of opinion on. No, no. So, I mean, the arithmetic average was was never because eight percent of my colleagues said we would never build machines mm-hmm. that would be smart. So, so that actually is the median answer. So, fifty percent said it was less than twenty sixty two, and fifty percent said it was after. But there was a widespread. I mean, over several hundred years. Uh, you know, it's not. So, it's, some people say within ten years. Is that a radical position, or are there a significant number of people whose opinions are respected who say within a decade? Well, in, interesting enough, uh, I also surveyed the public, and the public thought it was about 2045, which is the year that Ray Kurzweil has been promising mm-hmm. us for, for some time now. But the experts were a, a little more pessimistic. 2062 was their median, but even they had a very widespread, 50, 100 years. Uh, I mean, it's clear there's a huge amount of uncertainty. We don't know what we need to do still. There's a huge amount of work to do before we can have machines that are as smart as us. We, there's lots of things that we do that machines just cannot do yet, and we're not even starting to begin on that. Well, let's go back a step. What is not artificial intelligence, but what is intelligence? Well, we don't even have a good intelli- definition of intelligence. Mm. I mean, some people think it's what's measured by IQ tests, but we, we know that there are huge cultural factors in IQ tests. Uh, so, uh, as researchers in AI, we, we tend to sort of finesse the problem, take a very functional definition. It's just doing things that when humans do them, we think they require intelligence. That, that there's Is there an aspect to intelligence that it's it, 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 there's, there's a breadth to it? It's bringing together different things and combining them rather than an incredibly narrow niche skill? There are many types of intelligence. There's social intelligence, emotional intelligence. There's the creativity. There's um, you know, a mathematical intelligence. So, so intelligence definitely comes in many different forms and flavors, and we can only manage some of those forms and flavors today. And we've still got a long way even within those. So, so do we have an accepted definition of artificial intelligence? Not really. I mean, the the definition that you often fall back on is it's all the things we can't yet do with a computer. <laughs> Like, okay, let me give you some examples of events that have happened recently, and you can tell me whether you think these in any way are approaching or examples of artificial intelligence. And if they're not, what would we consider them? People might have heard of the, the Google project AlphaGo, where a, a computer was taught, uh, well, first of all, a computer was taught how to play the board game Go, and it had a lot of human intervention, and it played a human, then went away and played multiple versions of itself, millions upon millions of games, and got to a level beyond that of the human world champion. Now, a lot of people had said this was going to take another 20 years before a machine, they'd beaten us at chess for a while, but 20 years before a machine could beat us at Go, it taught itself in the space of a few months to be so much better than the original program the world champion had seen, totally schooled the world champion. Is that and came up with strategies that humans had not come up with in thousands of years of playing this game. Is that artificial intelligence? That certainly is artificial intelligence. And it was a landmark moment because people had said it was a long way off before it would. And now, actually, it plays so far beyond what humans can play. The, the Chinese have called it, the Chinese who invented the game, of course, thousands of years, a couple of thousand years ago, they've called it a go-god it's playing sublime moves that we've never seen. It will actually take us to new places in the game of Go. It's, uh, Go masters are quite excited. Quite, it will actually change the, the game of Go. It will teach us new things about the Go. It, it's, you know, we have a good example because, as you mentioned, chess. Back in 97, Kasparov, the world champion, was mm. beaten. 
And that actually has has transformed the game. We now the, the game of chess is now much better, no one, because of what chess computers can teach us. The there are actually interesting enough. It hasn't spoiled chess. There are more people earning their living, professionals playing chess than in '97. And the amateur game has improved dramatically because lots of people can now play, uh, have be coached by excellent players, chess computers. Uh, and the Go Masters are similarly excited that it's going to actually ch- change the nature of the game. It's going to lift the standard of the game and also teach us new things that we humans never learned in several thousand years of playing the game of Go ourselves. And, and the neural network that underpins AlphaGo was applied to chess. And it was simply shown the rules of chess, not shown a single game, didn't play any humans, just shown the rules of chess. And in just four hours of playing against itself got to a level where it beat the world's strongest chess computer. Quick sidebar, some people argue that world's strongest chess computer was not using its full opening book, blah, 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 but became remarkably good in four hours, clearly better than any human being could ever be, was given another few days and didn't get any better. So we have a neural network that within four hours can teach itself to be beyond brilliant at chess. But don't some people argue, Toby, that that's just... That's really good at chess, but that's not intelligence. There's no breadth of knowledge there. It can't do anything beyond play a remarkably good game of chess. So would some people argue against you that that's not artificial intelligence? Well, that's not artificial general intelligence. It doesn't have the full breadth of ability, but it's a, it's a very narrow domain and it can play at superhuman level. Of course, it's worth pointing out it only took four hours, but it was playing much, much faster than any human could play. It played millions of games of Go in parallel against itself. Um, so it actually learned slower than humans. Uh, I mean, AlphaGo played more games of Go than any human could possibly do in a lifetime of playing Go. Um, so computers are still actually quite slow learners, but because they can work so much faster than us and they can work in parallel, they can do many problems at the same time and they can play Go not at human speed but at, but at electronic speed, they can, they can see more Go. And so AlphaGo got to be such a good Go player because it saw more Go than any human could possibly do in a lifetime of playing Go. Okay, the second, the second example, the Jape joke algorithm. Explain to us what JAPE is and where we are with JAPE. I believe you know some people who work on it. Yes, yeah, so some, some colleagues of mine back in back in Scotland wrote this program to, to try and to try and write jokes and word puns and these sorts of things. And it passed what you might call the, the joke Turing test. Turing test is you know can you tell the computer apart from a human? And if you focus on just answering, asking jokes, um, it passed at the level of, of Christmas crackers. Oh Ow. Okay. Why are you never hungry in the desert? Because of all the sandwiches. Yes, it would make jokes just like that. And um, they, they showed a bunch of the jokes that Jape had written and a bunch of jokes that they found in Christmas crackers. And it was like tossing a coin. People couldn't tell them apart. Is that intelligence? Well, it's one small aspect of our intelligence. It requires a certain amount of creativity, wordplay to be able to do that, and, and a certain amount of cultural knowledge to be able to do that. Uh, but it, again, Jape could only play, only uh, invent very bad Christmas cracker jokes. Jape couldn't play chess, and, and Jape couldn't do all the other things that we humans do. So that's why, that's why artificial and general intelligence matching humans at their breadth of ability is still 50, 100, or even more years if ever, away. The final example I want to get your feedback on, and then I want to explore more that difference between narrow and, and general intelligence. Uh, some people might have heard about the Facebook scandal where Facebook had a couple of uh, 
AI platforms communicating with each other, and then the news was they started speaking their own secret language, and the program had to be shut down for fear that there was something going on. The organisers of the platform just you know, could not even follow. I'll, I'll quote you uh, some of what they were saying. There were two uh, platforms, Bob and Alice, and Bob, I can, I, 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 everything else, Alice, balls have zero to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, I, 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 Bob, you, I, everything else, end quote. Does that mean we are basically now in a Will Smith movie and the machines are rising up? What was that Facebook AI platform thing? I'm afraid that was fake news. Again, I knew the people. Who would have thought? I knew the people working at and they had a very uh, normal aim. They were, they were trying to teach a computer to negotiate with humans, to negotiate how to share some resources together. And they thought at the end of the experiment, they got it to, to negotiate with humans to share some, some resource. And, and at the end of the experiment, they said, well, what happens if we just connect itself to, to itself? So they got made two copies of the program. And then they just let it go and, and, and learn how to negotiate with, with itself. And they forgot, of course, that they hadn't put into the program any necessity that it speak in English. And so it learned to speak in shorthand how to negotiate. And of course, to computers, that, that gobbledygook sounds perfectly fine. Um, and it's, so, and it's, it's much more compressed, much shorter way of communicating the negotiation it was doing. And, so, and then they turned it off because it, you know, it wasn't particularly interesting and it wasn't particularly intelligible. And it really didn't help them negotiate with humans. So it was more, it, it, it manifested the existence of some laziness in the programming on the human part, rather than was creating its own language to escape detection by humans while it schemed away. Yes, and it also demonstrates that our human language has a lot of redundancy in it, which makes sense when we're talking in noisy, crowded environments. But if you've got two computers talking to each other, they can speak in shorthand. So you, you, we started this conversation by you saying that you, you asked 300 of your colleagues when, if ever, we will have an AI as in uh, an intelligence, computer intelligence greater than that of humans. What do you mean when you talk about narrow versus general intelligence? You've used that phrase a couple of times. Narrow is just doing one task. So just playing the game of Go, just inventing uh, Christmas cracker jokes. Uh, that's artificial narrow intelligence. And we have made quite good progress in artificial narrow intelligence. We can we can read x-rays faster and more accurately than human doctors. We can diagnose pulmonary disease more accurately than any human doctor. So there's narrow tasks that we can do. But artificial general intelligence and saying, well, what about the full breadth of things that we can do? We, I can drop you into a new situation and you can start doing things. You, can, you have immense creativity, adaptability, or uh, you, you are very robust in your problem solving. When, when something starts to go wrong, you don't break just like computers do. You, your performance degrades slowly. So artificial general intelligence is asking that question. Could we get machines to do all of the things that we do? Is it accepted that if we are to create a general intelligence, is, is, is there an accepted way of doing it? Do we get lots of amazing narrow intelligences and somehow fuse them together? Or do we start with a really basic general intelligence and let it get better at all its different components? Does that question even make sense? Well, the only accepted way to do it is to have babies, of course. 
But yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we that that might be one mo- you know one model. So people do try and generate you know an artificial brain. So um, look at the structures of the brain and, and build that in the abstract in silicon. Uh, and then, well, then you think about, well, how do how do then we, when we're born, become intelligent? Well, a lot of that's learned. And when you're born, you can't speak, you can't write. Um, you're not actually very smart at all. And most of your intelligence are things you learn. So um, one component of AI is saying, well, let's let's build machines that can learn. And then we can they can learn things like we learned our intelligence. So starting that, that machine starting completely from scratch. Yes, but you know why start from scratch? It actually, it's not clear that we start from scratch. You know, if you believe people like Chomsky, things like language are possibly innate and mm-hmm. built into the structure of our brain, which explains why languages across the world are so similar, and explains why even if if people are brought up, um, you know, twins learn their own um, languages, but they actually those languages share structures that f- are found in 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 real languages as well. So um, we we might actually want to try and load up some things in advance to make it actually a bit quicker and easier because um, you know, we don't actually want to have to send robots to school for 20 years to make sure that they're smart. We would actually just like them to be smarter much quicker than that. So, so with the 8% of your colleagues who said never, yes. this just won't happen, is there a common reason or set of reasons they give? Do they argue you, you can get as far as you want on niche intelligence. You can never get general. Do they argue there's just limits on this? Isn't what those who are who say we just won't get there? What are the sort of reasons they quote? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one is consciousness. That machines have no sentience, no consciousness, and we. I mean, consciousness is one of the most uncertain, one, one unknown questions in the whole of science. We have no way of measuring what consciousness is. We don't even know what it is, really. Uh, we think it happens in our brains, but we don't know where or what in our brains is, is responsible. But it, it's clearly connected to our intelligence in some way. And um, certainly machines that we build today have nothing in the way of approaching consciousness, and maybe they never will. And if they don't, maybe that will actually be a limit on on how smart they can be, because they won't be able to reflect like we do. Is, is, it, is it agreed that machines would have to be conscious for there to be a a general ai no in fact it would be it would be quite convenient quite a, quite good if they weren't because then we could wouldn't have to worry about them if they become conscious then they will probably suffer and they will probably we probably start to think well probably they should have some rights mm-hmm. because all conscious animals we give certain rights to and the more conscious things are the more rights we tend to give them so if machines become conscious, then we probably have to start thinking about whether we give them rights, whether we can turn them off, whether we can make them do all the dirty, dull and difficult things in our lives. Um, so if they don't become conscious, if they what David Chalmers call zombie intelligence, then we can torture them and make them do all the d- nasty things in our lives for us and they will be our slaves and we won't have to worry. Okay, so outside of they might not form consciousness, what are some of the other reasons that unite those who say we'll never get there? I think the other big reason is is the is the complexity of the human brain. The human brain is the most complex system we know of in the universe by orders of magnitude. Nothing has the the billions of neurons, the trillions of synapses and connections that the human brain has. It's it's by far more complex than anything we've ever built. And um it's therefore just a remarkable thing to try and achieve and and um we so we may never be able to build something as good as that. In your book you you say, if we do get there in, let's say, 2062, you look at what the world might look like in various... But, but can I say, I think yes. it would be terribly conceited to think 
Um, you know, actually, I think that those eight percent of my colleagues to think that we are as intelligent as you could be is terribly conceited. Right? Every time we've ever thought we were special, we weren't. You know, the the sun didn't go around the earth; the earth went around the sun. We were no different than the apes; we were descended from the same line as those. So every time that we've thought we were special, there was something really special about us, and that meant that we we we, we were wrong. And if we think that our intelligence is something so special that we couldn't perhaps make something more intelligent, or there wouldn't be something more intelligent in the universe. I think we should be humbled by the fact that we've always been wrong. At the same time, could our limited intelligence be limited to the extent where we cannot go on to create something greater than our own intelligence? If, if the highest form of life on Earth at the moment was, let's say, puppy dogs, yes, which are awesome, <laughs> I think you'd look at a planet of puppy dogs and go, they're, they're smarter than trees they're probably not going to be able to create an artificial intelligence because their limited cranial capacity would stop them doing it. So is it possible that the human brain is just not smart enough to ever crack the potentially possible uh, world of AI? Yes, that, that, that is, another, I think, the third argument, which is that maybe we're just not smart enough to build things. Just as, you know, cows weren't smart enough to invent farming and they probably never will be smart enough to invent farming, um, we may never be smart enough to in, in, invent machines that could be um, smarter than us, that we, we may never actually fully understand the complexity of our human brains and be able to build something as smart as that. If we do, let's say there is an AI, a general AI. But that... th there is an argument against that, which is if we pick narrow domains, we've already gone past that point. Hmm. We've already built programs that can play Go better than humans, programs that can read X-rays hmm. better than the humans. So, so... I mean, that's the other way. Maybe we're just going to glue together all these different programs that are specialists in their own little narrow niche. And eventually, if we build enough of those little niches, then we'll have something that matches all our capabilities. And just sort of bubbles up effectively into an AI. Yes. One thing that's given a lot of thought is to the notion of the world economy, if we did have an AI. And there seems to be a spectrum here from everything from... Uh, the capitalist system keeps going, but millions of people lose their jobs and they are thrown on the scrap heap because there's nothing they can do better than intelligent machines. At the other end of the spectrum, the AI comes along and creates unlimited wealth on renewable energy for everyone, and we all have nothing to do and just sit around and enjoy the bounty of that wealth, and we're all artists and poets and permanently on holiday uh, and it seems to be you know, people have opinions anywhere in between. Can you walk us through that really complicated discussion about what the world economy and the world of work could potentially look like if we did have a, a, a general AI? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, that's one reason I wrote the book was actually I think we should be having this really important conversation, which is that, you know, one end of the spectrum you talk about, well, if we can share the bounty around, then then we can all... Uh, sit back and enjoy the benefits. And that's, you know, in some sense, that's what we did with the Industrial Revolution. Um, we are now all much wealthier. We have shared the benefits, not equally, but we have shared the benefits. Um, you know, medium work wage has increased significantly. The working week has dropped dramatically. The uh, our, our life expectancy has doubled here in Australia. Our life expectancy has doubled since the Industrial Revolution. So um, we did use the technology that came along uh, uh, the machines that came along, the automation, the elect electrification that came along then to improve the quality of our lives and to share most of that bounty around. The interesting question is, with this 
technological revolution, and it is already happening, even if we don't make machines as smart as us, we are starting to see AI do useful things in our lives. And that's going to bring a bounty of some sort. The question is, how are we going to share that bounty around? I would push back against the idea that, that we'll run out of work. We might run out of jobs, but we'll never run out of work. Um, there's plenty of work that we do that's actually not paid today. We look at childcare, aged care, all the voluntary work in our community, all the things actually that we really value, but perhaps we don't pay for enough or at all in some places. Um, and so we could, if we could decide to actually reward that work um, and to recognize that work in our society. Um, if we you know, allow the fact that the robots are generating the material wealth, we can spread that around the rest of us and do the things that are actually important. And, and maybe we will work less. That's, that's equally possible um, if we make the right sort of political choices. Um, and, and um, you know, after all, the only truly obscene four-letter word is work. <laughs> At the same time, some people see parallels with the, you know, the leisure hypothesis of the 70s when computers first started coming along. There was a serious school of thought of, soon with these computers doing everything, we will have so much spare time. We'll need experts advising humans on how to use their spare time. Otherwise, they will just go crazy with boredom. Now, if you compare uh, the amount of people who say they don't get enough sleep now compared to 15, 20 years ago, the rigours of work, the amount of time people spend commuting, etc., the, 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 the leisure hypothesis never really bore itself out, did it? It didn't. And the reason that that happened is because the uh, wage per hour has gone down in real terms. Hmm. And so we're having to, to get the same, uh, same uh, wealth. We're having to work longer. And, and that is a problem. That, that is a, a challenge to our society. And we have to think about, you know, should we be looking to spread the wealth a bit more equally? Because, you know, the rich are obviously getting much richer today. We're seeing increasing divisions within our society. And that's also being reflected, you know, politically and elsewhere. Um, which would then mean that we could uh, work less. Big questions. One area where we're already making great strides forward, as in technologically improving rapidly, not necessarily in a good way, uh, weapons of war and moving towards autonomous weapons and intelligent weapon systems. Uh, a lot of people sound a, a, a great note of caution about this, and already some of the things we're seeing like drone weapons and the like. Others say as much as you can remove human beings from the front line of fighting, uh, the more humane in some ways war becomes, which is can, you know, can seem like a, a, a curious notion. What are your thoughts on autonomous weaponry and the, the future of war if we move to more and more intelligent machines and systems? This is something that does keep me awake at night. I, I've become yeah. quite, quite an accidental activist in this and actually ended up speaking now four times at the United Nations on this topic, warning about the dangers. It is unfortunately a rather naive and misguided idea to think that we, we could actually get humans out of the battlefield and that the robots would fight according to more precise rules, you know, because um, it wouldn't happen like that. Wars are fought in towns and cities amongst civilian populations, against civilian populations. Um, and so um, they would be weapons that would be used against us. There are plenty of bad people out there, terrorists and rogue states, who would have no qualms about using these weapons. They would be the perfect weapons of terror because you could give them any mission, however terrible, however evil, and they would execute that mission to the letter because they wouldn't have any of the qualms. They wouldn't have any of the, the consciousness. And they wouldn't be responsible because they're machines and you wouldn't be able to uh, prosecute them for war crimes and they wouldn't be responsible for what they did. Um, so it would be a terrible way and it would be a terrible escalation of the speed, accuracy and duration of warfare. 
And we have got a brief window, an opportunity to decide these are technologies that we don't use to fight war, to prosecute war with. Occasionally we do that. We have decided chemical weapons shouldn't be used, biological weapons, even today, nuclear weapons. Now there's officially a UN ban on nuclear weapons um, and some other um, you know, more specific uh, technologies, uh, blinding lasers, clustering munitions. There are a number of technologies we decided were just not right for fighting war with. And there's plenty of good things we could do with AI, even in a military setting, I mean, clearing a minefield, perfect job for a robot. Um, bringing supplies into contested territory. Again, perfect rob, rob, job for an autonomous vehicle. Um, so there's plenty of good things we can do with with AI um, to make uh, the way we fight war uh, be better, but not to actually hand over the decision as to machines as to who lives and who dies. When, when, when you put that case at, at somewhere like the United Nations, do you have widespread support? Has the rest of the world not really started to think about it yet? Or are there some people hedging their bets because they're pushing heavily in this direction and they see it as the future? Uh, well, there is growing support. 26 nations now have called for a preemptive ban on the use of these sorts of technologies in, in war. Um, most recently, Austria, um, the European Union a couple of weeks ago voted uh, that we should go down this road. Of course, it's worth mentioning out there are strong forces against this. Um, arms companies are going to make a huge amount of money selling this next generation of weapons. Um, and there are a number of nations, in particular the United States, China, Russia, the United Kingdom and Israel, who see this as a way of, of, of getting a technical lead on their opponents. I think that's very misguided. You never keep a technical lead on your opponents. We uh, when we developed the hydrogen bomb, the Russians had it a few years later. Well, actually, they stole it a few years later. But which, whatever way, you're not going to keep uh, the genie in the box. Once you have it, it's going to easily leak out. And these are actually, in some sense, more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons haven't proliferated because it takes vast resources to build yourself a nuclear weapon. You need fissile material. You need some some very smart physicists. You need the resources of a nation state to build them. And um, despite uh, the safeguards we've, we've put in place, a few nations, um, North Korea, uh, India, Afghan, um, uh, Pakistan, have developed nuclear weapons, but they haven't proliferated widely, um, partly because of the, these challenges. But, but autonomous weapons would be cheap. Go down to your hardware store, buy, buy yourself a drone, put some explosives on it. Then the hardware is, is finding yourself some smart software to do this. But if you're a terrorist, of course, you don't care if it's not that smart. If you kill the wrong people, that's what you want to do as a terrorist. I'm speaking with Professor Toby Walsh about his book, 2062, The World That AI Made, and asking him the big questions about the technology of the future and artificial intelligence. Professor Walsh, some people talk about the, the issue of the alignment problem. If we're working towards an AI and 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 at some stage the the the, the, the AI becomes genu generally intelligent, but we haven't from what my understanding of the problem is, if we haven't instructed it on what it wants to do, or if its goals don't align with ours, rather than the rise of evil machines that seek to topple humanity, we might just have an intelligent system that's meant to govern our economic and health records and things like that decide that actually what's really important is to calculate pi to the trillion, 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 trillionth decimal place and all the computers run off and do that because our priorities don't align with them. Is, is that a, a vaguely accurate yes. encapsulation of the alignment problem? And is the alignment problem 
a genuine concern? It's a it's a real problem, and it, it's it shows you that actually Hollywood is is sort of misguided us here. It's not malevolence in the machines; it's incompetence in the way that we build the machines that we probably have to worry about more. Our, and, our incompetence, our incompetence in actually you know setting the machines off and giving them their their initial goals, and that it may turn out to be that if we haven't thought carefully through what it is, that they don't align with with human good. And actually, you can already see this is a problem today in society. It's not a problem in some science fiction future. It's a problem we see today with, for example, Facebook. We see this, that, that you know, the, the, they're trying to optimize our screen time. And that is not necessarily optimizing the quality of our lives. Hmm. That, um, you know, all of this, you know, fake news and algorithms that are serving up clickbait for us is keeping us glued to the screen and resulting as a, as an unfortunate side effect of us having this very divided political debate and to to have fake news that distorts the way we vote um, and so we're already seeing that it has unfortunate effects that the algorithms are not aligned to what actually we want to be society's value and and the, and the challenge is is it not that if you have multiple organisations all working towards creating AI or smart machines and you've got everything on the spectrum from you know, government agencies that you might hope have a degree of vigilance and planning and safety built in through to people in their garages or corporations desperate to get that six-month advantage over getting there first, there's a real possibility that the first people to get there, by definition, would be the ones who've been the least cautious instead in terms of slowly treading and building in a inherent safety mechanisms, etc. I've heard someone like Max Tegmark who speaks on this saying that even if we were even if we could get to a safe AI by a certain date, if we get to an unsafe AI six months earlier, then it's irrelevant that you could have got there safely six months later. If the first one we get to has inherent unsafety or lack of supervision built in, that could be a dangerous situation. Is is that is that you know, scare talk on his part? Or is that a, a, a genuine concern about the way or the moment at which we reach general intelligence? Well, I'm not sure it's going to be a single moment in time. The machines are going to creep, creep up on us much more slowly than that. But we do have to worry. And in fact, we have a good historical precedent here, which was the Industrial Revolution. And at the start of the Industrial Revolution, uh, we did see that there were some unfortunate forces and we ended up with the robber barons, the Rockefellers of the world who... And, and we had to regulate. We had to ensure we introduced unions and labor laws, the welfare state, to make sure that it, it was aligned with society's values and not to just make sure that the owners are the means of production. So I think, again, I've, I've, I've been very voluble about this, saying that you know, six biggest companies today on the planet are now, for the first time, all technology companies. And mm. we do have to think about, well, we do have to make sure that we regulate them. You know, it's not... Um, Facebook is now, the, you know, in some sense, the biggest provider of news on the planet, and yet it doesn't apply the same rules, or the same rules are not applied to Facebook as, a, as to conventional media organizations, and they don't take responsibility for serving up all this fake news and for, for distorting our political discourse, and maybe we should actually hold them to a higher standard. Ironically, when it comes to intelligent machines, in the time that we've been sitting here speaking, my watch has just beeped and congratulated me because I've completed the 250 steps <laughs> I was meant to this hour. Well, you've been waving your hands around a bit much, Adam. <laughs> I, I, I must have been gesticulating wildly because in the last 45 minutes, I haven't felt like I've gone I, anywhere. I've got one th news for you, yeah. Adam. They're fake steps. <laughs> so which, which countries, which corporations 
are doing the heavy lifting on AI at the moment, and and how much do we know? How much of what we know is everything to know, and how much is possibly going on secretly that we we don't know? Where's, where is the work in this field at the moment? Toby? That, that's an interesting question. I mean, it used to be the focus; you would find the majority of the work happening in the United States. Mm. Um, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, and, and you know, there's some companies like Google and Facebook and, and Amazon who have, have been investing heavily now. But we've and seen, been public about the fact that they're doing it. Yes, and uh, you know, I know many of the people working there, and and um, that what's going on there is is pretty well known. But we've actually seen a huge, great shift in the last three or four years with um, China, which have gone very public uh, in that they are betting their future both economic, military, and other, in AI. And, um, you know, that's a very sensible bet if you're China, if you've got a growing middle class and you want to see how are they going to keep keep that middle class and their economy growing, then investing in technologies like this that will help them generate wealth is a very safe bet. But, but um, they're also arguing that they're going to be using it for their military dominance, and they're making huge great bets. I mean, just one company, Alibaba, has announced it's going to be spending $15 billion over the next five years, uh, which is more than... On AI. On AI uh, and quantum computing. Um, that's more than, than the United Kingdom spending and the more than France is spending together. Um, it is um, anyway, way more than is being spent by the... Uh, U.S. counterparts, um, and so you know the penultimate chapter of my book is actually entitled "The End of the West," which is that you know we can p- expect to see that the you know the history of AI doesn't have China written in it at the moment, but the future history of AI almost surely will. You, you mentioned quantum computing, uh, the idea that if we get computers based on systems where, uh, that, that are running in parallel instead of uh, in, in, in sequence from each other and if a computer is effectively making multiple calculations at the same time and its power therefore grows exponentially, that's a very rough and simple, mm-hmm. you know, but the idea of computers that can solve in brief periods of time problems that now our current systems, there's not enough time in the universe to solve. Is quantum comp- computing a completely separate topic to AI, or is it assumed that the sort of systems that would be AI would need a degree of quantum computing underpinning them? Quantum computing will probably give us a leg up, as you as you point out. It will allow us to do some things exponentially faster, and that that's certainly going to be a, a great benefit. But but even exponentials aren't going to solve artificial intelligence. It's it's wrong to think we just have to sit and wait for the quantum computers to come. And then we'll be able to run what we can do today so much faster that it will be intelligence. And there's a good analogy. It's called the faster thinking dog. So if we take your family dog and we had some ma- magic way of with a, with a dial of making that dog think faster, we could turn, turn the dial up. It doesn't matter how fast we got your dog to think. It would still probably think doggy thoughts. It would still chase cats and birds and, and desire bones. It, it's probably never going to write the works of Shakespeare. It's probably never going to invent mathematics. It, it, it doesn't have language, and there's various structures probably missing in its brain, so it doesn't matter how fast you make it think. It's never going to be that much more intelligent. It's just going to be a faster-thinking dog. But if we trace the tree of life of humans back far enough, we get to something that certainly would never have invented mathematics and probably wasn't looking at the universe around it yes. and thinking. What's the difference between where we are now and back then? Simply the size of the grey matter? Complexity. Our brain is just so much more complex than those those simple brains. And our brain you know, our brain is so much more complex than, than almost any other, anything else on the universe and any other brains that we know of so far. Oh, I mean, there's a, 
we're not the only um, intelligence on on the planet, of course. Um, there's there's a nice bit in my book about I think you know what's the closest thing we know to alien intelligence, and that's the in, intelligence of of octopuses. Yeah, the cephalopods. The cephalopods got it going on. Uh, and they are remarkable. I mean, if you know, I was thinking I, I probably should be writing my next book about the cephalots because they are just so amazing. You can trace back when you know, I know evolutionary true to, to when humans were last related to to the octopuses, the cephalopods. Um, you know, because we're related to all other animals somewhere far back. But you have to go way back to when there was just um, single celled life for us to actually have a common ancestor. Um, and so their intelligence evolved completely separately to ours. They were completely different. Um, you know, obviously, single-celled life can't be intelligent, as far as we know. So their intelligence evolved um, completely separately. They're, they're very intelligent. They what can uh, they do? <laughs> they're, they're amazing. They they can recognise human human faces. Um, people people who keep them in laboratories and do experiments recognize reckon they can recognize different people. They can um, use tools. That's often a, a measure of intelligence. They can use strategy, can't they? They can hunt in packs and things yes, like that can, to solve they, hunting problems. They can hunt in packs. They can open a jar. Uh, what else do you need? Lead. And then they're famous escapologists. Uh, people who keep them in labs have lots of stories about how they escape out of their tanks. And then I remember the favorite, my favorite story, of course, is the one about the, the octopus that learnt how to turn the lights off. So it was living in a laboratory and they had this very bright, you know, 500 watt lamp above the tank. And the, and the octopus got disturbed when he wanted it, the light to go out at night so it could sleep and the light would stay on. And, um, and so the, the researchers would come in in the morning and, and the light uh, was, was blown. And so they replaced the light and they came back in the next morning and the light was blown again. So they replaced it and then they put a camera up to see what, why was the light blowing. And as, when they went out to the lab, the octopus would squirt water onto the lamp light and fuse it. Until it blew. Until it blew. So if you had a choice between living in a world where the machines had raised up and taken over or the cephalopods had got the upper hand... Professor Toby Walsh, which one would you well, ha- happily live as a subjugated slave in? Well, of course, the cephalods never um, have developed language as far as we know. So um, they, whilst they have intelligence and they, they do have, um, you know, they are given rights, for example, in, in against a, um, animal experimentation um, because it's thought that they might suffer, they aren't of obviously as high intelligence as us. Um, and therefore, I would still prefer to be in the wondrous world that we live in with Shakespeare and Wordsworth and all the wonderful science and things that language has brought us. In your role as a rock star of the digital revolution in Australia, one of the hundred, is it true? Are you part of helping to put together Australia's roadmap, our sort of AI future? What's happening in Australia at the moment on this topic? Yes, we're a bit behind the curve, but the politicians have woken up to the idea. And and um, yes, I'm chairing the, the expert working group that's writing a plan that hopefully the, the government will be um, funding next year in the budget. Your book is entitled 2062 because that was the median score of the 300 experts who you asked. Before you began to consult with those experts, what was the number you'd put on it? I would be actually a little bit more pessimistic. I, I would say somewhere about 2,100. Why is that pessimism? Some people would say that's <laughs> optimistic because that's an extra 38 years for humanity to survive. Oh, I, 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 I'm actually pessimistic in the short term. I think it's going to be rather a bumpy next 50 years. But then I'm optimistic in the long term because the only reason that we live better quality lives than our grandparents is because we embrace technology and we've got some absolutely wicked problems that face us today like climate change 
And, you know, we're not going to, as far as I can see, we're not going to have any political solution to those. We're going to have to embrace technology to try and get us through that difficult phase. Um, and technologies like AI will help us to use the planet more efficiently, will help us to, to live better lives. Um, so we do have to embrace the technology, but to remember, and that's, you know, I think one of the important messages of my book, which is that, um, you know, the future is not fixed. The future is the product of the decisions we make today. And we don't have to use technologies in all ways. We don't have to use them, for example, always to fight war. We could decide to make the world a better place by using the technologies for just for peaceful purposes, from, for dealing with hunger and improving our health, um, rather than just trying to kill people. Um, and, and so it's about, you know, the book was really trying to say, let's have that conversation. And it's not a conversation that just I and my colleagues working in the field should be having. It's about a society's choices as to what, what sort of world do we want to wake up in. And that, that was the other strange part about the title 2062, which was that when I finished writing the book, I was explaining to my daughter about the book. And she said, well, I said, you know, really, it's about the world you're going to inherit. And then I did the maths and I worked out she would be exactly my age in 2062. Spooky. spooky very spooky <laughs> completely unintended but it really is the world that she and our children will inherit exciting times and thank you so much for walking us through the uh, possible roadmap towards an ai world professor toby walsh my pleasure this episode of the big questions as always was produced and edited by alex mitchell in the podcast one studios series producer caroline pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at uncanny valley if you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Big questions.